let's pray once more. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is the life-giving vehicle that we need this morning. It's the way that you address us and speak to us and comfort us and encourage us and correct us and teach us. We pray that you would do all that by your spirit for our good and your glory this morning. Speak now for your servants are listening. Amen. Well, as Jim said prior to his reading, we have been in a series of sermons on the conscience, and this is week three. We're going to have one more, Lord willing, next week. And uh, the first week we talked about what the conscience is. We defined it. And our operating definition for the conscience is what we believe, the consciousness rather, of what we believe to be right and wrong. We defined it as the moral faculty within human beings that assesses what is good and what is bad. The moral faculty within human beings that assesses what is good and what is bad. That was week one. Week two, last week, we considered what happens when the conscience goes badly. That is, when it gets weak, seared, or becomes evil and guilty. And we talked about sort of the first way that, the, that, a, that a bad conscience gets addressed, which is through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that because we, through our sin, develop an evil or a guilty conscience, we need to have that conscience cleansed. And that conscience is cleansed through the blood of Christ, as our brother Jonathan was reminding us earlier in the service. That it's through the cross, through the death of Christ, through the resurrection of Christ, that our consciences are cleansed. And then we go public with that trust in Christ in baptism, and we walk in obedience, and our conscience is more and more made good and clean. And we can begin operating before God, as Paul says, in all good conscience. However, this morning, what we want to address is one aspect of what it means to have a weak conscience and how a weak conscience is made strong. How is a weak conscience made stronger? Because, ironically, it includes more than just the gospel message. It doesn't include less than that, but it includes more. Namely, a calibration that has to increasingly take place as we are sanctified in Christ, as we grow in grace, as we become more like Jesus, as we pursue him more. A calibration needs to take place where our mind is more and more adapted to and informed by the worldview of the scriptures where the scriptures are beginning to shape and form how we think and live and behave and see things. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. How is a weak conscience made strong through a process we're going to call calibration? Three points this morning to the sermon. Here's the outline. You have it in front of you if you have a note sheet. What does it mean to calibrate the conscience? Why do we need to calibrate the conscience? And how do you calibrate your conscience? So what, why, how? Number one. What does it mean to calibrate the conscience? Well, a few weeks ago, a mysterious light came on the dashboard of our van, and we all know what those mysterious lights sometimes indicate, and sometimes we don't. And this was one of those situations where I wasn't quite familiar with what this light indicated. So I did what you do. Either you Google search it, or you look in the owner's manual and try to figure out what's going on. So I had the owner's manual there, and I determined that what was happening was inadequate tire pressure. So the signal was indicating to me that I needed to add some pressure into my tires. So that's what I did. I added some air, and lo and behold, the light turned off. Now, why did that happen? Why did the light go off? The light went off because I had appropriately calibrated the tires in the van or on the van. 
It was aligned to the standard that the van was expecting, that the operating system was expecting, and therefore the light went off. And your conscience is a lot like that. Your conscience is a part of you that functions like an instrument, but it doesn't always function accurately. So you need to calibrate your conscience to align it more closely to the standard of God's Word. And then it should stop bugging you. It means that what it means, though, to calibrate is you're actually going beneath the surface of your conscience and bringing what you believe about right and wrong in conformity with God's Word, with the standards that He has revealed in Scripture. That is, we are adjusting what we believe about right and wrong to what God's Word says is right and wrong, and that's how we begin to calibrate our conscience. This is the way John MacArthur puts it in his book called The Vanishing Conscience. He says the following, The conscience reacts to the convictions of the mind and therefore can be encouraged and sharpened in accordance with God's Word. The wise Christian wants to master biblical truth so that the conscience is completely informed and then judges right because it's responding to God's Word. A regular diet of Scripture will strengthen a weak conscience or restrain an overactive one. Conversely, error, human wisdom, and moral, wrong moral influences filling the mind will corrupt and cripple the conscience. In other words, the conscience functions like a skylight, not a light bulb. It lets light into the soul. It does not produce its own. Its effectiveness is determined by the amount of pure light we expose it to and by how clean we keep it. So what he's talking about there is the importance of flooding our consciences with the skylight of God's Word so that the purity of the Scriptures can begin calibrating our consciences correctly. God has written on every single one of our hearts, every single human heart, the knowledge of right and wrong, and sin affects our own hearts as well. Some of what you believe about right and wrong conforms to God's standards, and some of it does not. So by calibrating our consciences, we're talking about changing our convictions, but we're changing those convictions based upon the Scriptures. And we do that in two ways, mainly. We add to our convictions based upon what God's Word says, or we subtract from our convictions based upon what God's Word says. Let's take those one at a time. First of all, God's Word should subtract from our consciences. That is, it should take things off the conscience that shouldn't be there. Remember, our consciences are not equal to the voice of God. They need to be calibrated to the Word of God, and sometimes what the conscience is telling us needs to be addressed from the Word of God in, by way of subtraction. So to subtract from our consciences means that we have to subtract unnecessary rules from it. Mark Dever puts it this way, conscience cannot make a wrong thing right, but conscience can make a right thing wrong. Sometimes our consciences are not operating correctly, and they can actually make right things feel like wrong things. So, when you're calibrating your conscience, you are allowing the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of your conscience, to teach you through the Bible that your conscience has been incorrectly warning you about a particular matter, so you decide no longer to listen to your conscience in that one matter. That is what God is doing with Peter in Acts 10. He is trying to tell Peter that he needs to subtract from his conscience. We'll get more to that a little bit later. Now, we're not talking about sinning against your conscience, but changing the convictions that undergird your conscience. Sometimes our conscience can be slow to catch up with the convictions that are supposed to serve our consciences, and sometimes calibrating your conscience can feel, for a short period of time, like you're sinning against it, but actually... 
What's happening is you've changed your convictions based upon God's word and your conscience is different. So how do you know the difference between sinning against your conscience and calibrating your conscience? Well, you're sinning against your conscience when you believe your conscience is speaking correctly to you from the word of God and yet you refuse to listen to it. You are sinning against your conscience. You're sinning against God. However, you're calibrating your conscience when your conscience, in fact, tells you rightly, based on the scriptures, that Christ is teaching you through the Bible that your conscience has been operating incorrectly about a particular matter, so you decide no longer to listen to your conscience in that one area because scripture is speaking to your conscience in that one area. So let's take the example that we have before us in our text. Suppose your conscience condemns you like Peter for eating bacon. How could that happen, you say? But it would for a Jewish Christian. You think that Christians today must still follow the Mosaic law commands about food like Peter was under the assumption of? The theologically correct view, though, according to the sheet coming down and God's word being spoken, is that bacon is victory food based on the fact that Christians are, are under the new covenant and can enjoy it to the glory of God. But if you think that it's wrong to eat bacon, then you're sinning if you eat bacon. But if you could calibrate or adjust or train your conscience that bacon is no longer taboo for God's people, then even if you're convinced that it's not sinful to eat bacon, your conscience may warn you the first time. Imagine Peter having that right after that vision. Okay, God, I'm going to work on that. And then some Gentile Christians show up with a big plate of sausage. And he goes, ooh, probably shouldn't do it. Wait, God said, okay, all right, he said it, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. So ignoring that warning that Peter's conscience might be issuing to him is not disobeying God or sinning against his conscience. Rather, he's going through a process of calibration. He's not searing his conscience. He's not creating an evil conscience. He's calibrating his conscience. So that's what the first part, God's word should sometimes subtract the rules, the unnecessary rules that we place upon our consciences. Secondly, God's word should add to our consciences. Sometimes what doesn't bother our conscience should bother our conscience. And so we need to calibrate it by adding commands to it from God's word. I remember hearing a story one time about a pastor who was ministering in his community, had lots of young children in his community and, and his family reaching out to needy families and things like that, and they were inviting some kids over for th Thanksgiving dinner. And the pastor, these kids had no church background whatsoever. They were from very, very difficult situations, and he began circling around the table and asking each kid to share something that they were thankful for. And one of the children led off and said, I'll, I'll tell you something I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for pornography. You say, how could someone thank God for that? Their conscience was not bothering them in the least about that. Say, why wasn't their conscience bothering them in the least? It had not been shaped by Scripture. It was not informed by God's Word. And therefore, in that situation, that would be a conscience that needs to be added to. The conscience was clearing them on something that was clearly sinful. Many people will live together with their boyfriend or girlfriend or look at pornography with a clear conscience, but sexual immorality, according to the scriptures, is clearly sin against God and other people. But many people will gossip and lie and get drunk with a clear conscience, and both are sin. 
Just because we sin with a clear conscience doesn't mean it isn't sin. This is why we need to constantly educate our conscience with the Word of God. If our conscience isn't sensitive to a matter that Scripture clearly addresses, we have to educate it. We have to add to it with the truth of Scripture so that recalibration can take place and needed sensitivity can be cultivated. We need to be careful that we don't veer from one ditch into the other. The doctrine of Christian liberty can be abused by careless Christians who misunderstand or misuse the doctrine. And this is why the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Or Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.16, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So that's what it means to calibrate the conscience. We bring it under the searchlight of the scriptures. We add to it or subtract from it based upon what God's word teaches. Point number two, why do you need to calibrate your conscience? Why do you need to calibrate your conscience? I've got four things here. Number one, the first reason you need to calibrate your conscience is because we want to protect the unity of the church. We want to protect the unity of the church. If you have your copy of the scriptures, either on your phone or in a physical Bible in your lap, please turn to Romans chapter 14. We're going to be dealing with Romans 14 in greater detail next week. But for right now, I just want to read the first verse to us. Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Here's the first reason we need to calibrate our conscience, because we want to protect the unity of the church. This is why Paul addresses This very issue in the book of Romans in chapter 14. Verse 1, Paul writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Some translations may say disputable matters. So there is this category of disputable matters in Scripture, opinions that Christians carry that are not the command of God for every one of his people certain convictions that they have about certain things over matters which other Christians may disagree. Say, Pastor Mark, could you get specific? Sure. I'll give a few if I can find it in my notes here. Here are some examples of what that might look like for Christians in various contexts to adopt. So, for instance, issues around holidays, we could say watching mixed martial arts for entertainment, how to treat various aspects of the Lord's Day, listening to secular music, dressing modestly, capitalism versus socialism, fair trade coffee, global warming, watching particular movies or TV shows, playing video games, reading the Harry Potter series, wearing makeup, following the schedule of growing kids God's way, Homeopathic medicine versus antibiotics, public school versus private school versus private Christian school versus homeschool, eating fast food that's unhealthy, a church with multiple services or multiple sites, hip-hop music, Christian hip-hop, body piercings, tattoos, smoking cigars, drinking alcohol in moderation, going into debt, dating versus courtship, and activities that are appropriate when a couple is not married, when married couples should start to have children, how many children should... Married couples have, practicing daily family devotions and what those should look like, perpetuating the Santa Claus myth, or engaging in Halloween, 
Those are just a small list of any number of issues through which a Christian might have an opinion on. And Christians have opinions on them, don't they? So what we see, though, is that Paul would treat these matters as opinions, as matters of indifference. You know, one of the aspects that preserves the unity of the church the most is when a church adopts the understanding of theological triage. That may be a new term to you. Let me explain to it. Surely you know what triage is in the, in the hospital world. Triage is how the hospital determines what order in, to treat a patient if they're in, working in the emergency room, if an emergency room doctor or nurse is there and they're, they're trying to figure out which patient to treat, it may not be the person who's been waiting the longest. It's based upon how severe are the conditions that we are treating. If, if someone has a head cold and it's really bad, it could be a migraine and it hurts. But if someone just came in and their arms chopped off, they're going to get preferential treatment. Even if they just came in at the last second, you've been waiting there two and a half hours. Because your head cold and migraine is not as severe as in removed limb. So, so it is with issues in the church. Doctrinal priority and prioritization has a strong pedigree, brothers and sisters. Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 to 40, when the religious teachers of Jesus' day came up and was wondering, you know, what, what are sort of the most important things that God uh, evaluates? With? He says, I have two. Love God, love neighbor. That's That's priority. Those are, those are more important than other things. The Apostle Paul, following well the pattern of his master, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, indicates that the gospel is of first importance, that Christ Jesus died, was buried, was raised on the third day, that those things are of chief priority. They are of first importance. Certain doctrines have greater significance than others for the whole of Christian theology. Think of it like three levels you'll see a triangle behind me that contains those sorts of levels. Think of the first level. There, we would have a first level would be essential doctrines. These are the ones that are most central and essential to Christianity. You can't deny these teachings and still claim to be a Christian in any meaningful sense. For example, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity. There is one God in three persons. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus Christ sacrificed himself on the cross for sinners. He died in the place of sinners, bearing the wrath of God for their sins. Jesus rose bodily from the dead. We are justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Jesus is coming back. These are all things that mark a Christian. This is what a Christian is. These are essential doctrines. They are not to be disputed. They would also include various categories of clear biblical ethics, what God has clearly said we are to do and not do. Those are first level issues. Second level issues would be what we might call reasonable boundaries. These would create reasonable boundaries between Christians such that denominations and local churches exist. Listen, just because denominations and local churches exist and there's not one massive, one big local church doesn't mean that the church is not united. The church around the world, brothers and sisters, is immensely united, around 90 to 95% of what we believe, because we're Christians first. But there are reasonable boundaries that, 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 that indicate that Christians should operate under different, in, in the spheres of different local churches. These issues will have a bearing on what sort of church you are a part of. For example, what's your view on baptism? What's your view on God's sovereignty and salvation? What's your view on the role of men and women in the church and home? 
You don't have to hold to any one particular view of this to be a Christian, but it's challenging for a church to have any degree of health or unity when its leaders and members disagree on these reasonable matters. Third level issues would be minor disagreements. And you notice it's put in the shape of a pyramid for a reason. Because the things that unite us at the first level are very essential and very important, but very small, relatively speaking. And the things that are reasonable, that separate Christians into different local churches, are fine, but nevertheless, they're a little bit larger. But notice third-level issues, minor disagreements, includes the whole bottom of the pyramid. These are disputable issues, many of them issues of conscience. These aren't unimportant but members of the same church should be able to disagree with each other and still have close fellowship with one another. Views on miraculous gifts, interpretations of certain difficult passages of Scripture, millennial views and certain eschatological questions, and issues of conscience all fall within this spectrum. When an issue falls within these categories and where it falls... You should, you should have a question about it. You should say, well, Pastor Mark, how do we determine what falls in what category? Good question. You're thinking. This is good. Well, you determine it by weighing the cumulative force of the scriptures about those issues. So, for instance, consider these considerations. How clear is it in the Bible? How relevant is it to the character of God? How relevant is it to the essence of the gospel message? How frequent and significant does Scripture hold this matter up? Not just how you feel about it. How does Scripture assess how you feel about it? What weight does Scripture place upon it? How often in Scripture is it taught? What weight does Scripture place upon it? What effect does it have on other doctrines? What is the consensus among Christians past and present on that view? And what effect does it have on personal and church life? Those sort of questions get at what category these various issues would go in. Listen, all categories should be considered collectively in determining how important an issue is to the Christian faith. The ability to rightly discern the difference between core doctrine and legitimate opinion or disputable matter will keep the church from either compromising important truth or needlessly dividing over peripheral issues. More Christians need to develop not only the ability to distinguish between first, second, and third order issues. Let me say this. More Christians need to have those categories, period. There's lots of Christians that don't. They have one category. Everything's important, and I'm going to fight about all of it. That is not a mature position. That is not a sign of sanctification. That's a sign of gross immaturity. And Paul would say to you, grow up. Grow up into the full stature of measure the fullness of Christ because you're behaving like a child. Child throw temper tantrums about everything they don't like. Adults focus on what's most important. So here what we have is more Christians needing to develop this mindset but also the prior capacity to think in such categories so that they don't hold to third level opinions with the same vigor that only the weightier matters deserve. The absence of such categories has unfortunately divided too many churches. Disagreement on these issues shouldn't cause disunity in a church family. That is the third level minor disagreements. But unfortunately, they often do. In fact, if you read church history, 
most, well, maybe more recent church history, maybe not church history as a whole, but if you read recent church history, more disunity has occurred over third-level issues than first-level issues, and that's to our shame. We should expect disagreements with fellow Christians. You should expect them because the New Testament tells you to expect them. We should expect disagreements with fellow Christians about third-level matters, and we should learn to live with those differences. We're going to learn more about this next week. Christians don't always need to eliminate differences, but they must always seek to glorify God by loving each other through those differences. That's the main thing. Now, this structure does not imply that a Christian can take any biblical truth with less than full seriousness. We take all of what God's Word says seriously. We are charged to embrace and teach the whole comprehensive truthfulness of the Word of God as revealed in the Scriptures. There are no insignificant doctrines that that God speaks, but there are two errors to avoid. One error would be the error, error which is traditionally called theological liberalism which is the basic disrespect for biblical authority altogether. They ignore, dismiss, or feel free to tamper with what God has spoken. So, well, that doesn't apply to us, or I'm not going to do that, or we don't have to do that anymore. Well, the mark of theological liberalism is the refusal to admit that first-order issues exist in the first place. We can compromise and debate whether or not Jesus was born of a virgin, whether he rose from the dead, whether he died on the cross, whether the God is Trinity. All that's up for negotiation. Where the Bible's inerrant? No, it's not up for negotiation. Theological liberalism treats first-order doctrines as if they were merely third-order issues, opinions over which Christians can disagree. Thus, third-order issues are treated differently as though they were first-order. And the result is inevitably doctrinal ambiguity. Nobody knows what anybody believes and nobody talks about it. So in this error, every prescribed authoritative, normative word that God has spoken gets subjectivized. Well, that's not my God. Your God can be that way, but not my God. And so Scripture gets jettisoned in favor of our opinions. But there's another error, which is equally dangerous and more dangerous in in perhaps our particular stream of Protestant Christianity, which would be the fundamentalist error. Now, I'm talking about this in the terms of bending toward the opposite error of theological liberalism. The misjudgment of true fundamentalism is the belief that all disagreements concern first-order doctrines, that any area of disagreement is an area of first-order disagreement. Thus, third-order issues are raised to a first-order importance, and Christians are wrongfully and harmfully divided, and some of us have been a part of such things or witnessed them. Let me give you an example of what happens when this happens. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my absolute favorite preachers, hero of the faith, excellent man of God, worthy of imitation in so many, so many ways. One of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. But in March of 1924, when he was just 24 years old, 24-year-old preachers you need to be careful of because they have a lot of strong opinions about a lot of things. He shared some convictions from the pulpit, and all his sermons went into print, which is, whew, man, what a, what, a, what a challenging thing to live under. He shared some of his convictions in a way that I would suspect that later on he regretted and wishes he could write some retractions on. In fact, I know he would, because one of his favorite things to do in his older age was to watch professional wrestling with his grandchildren. I am not alone. So, here's what 
he said at the ripe old age, theologically informed of 24 years old, he said, quote, I cannot possibly understand a man who wears silk stockings or even gaudily colored socks, rings, wristwatches, shoes instead of boots, and who carries a cane in his hand. The modern method of installing a bath in each house is not only a tragedy, but it has been a real curse to humanity. If I had to spend a lifetime with a companion who had one bath a year, or with one who had, or sorry, one bath a day, or with one, one who had one bath a year, I should unhesitatingly choose the latter, because a man's soul is more important than his skin. When I enter a house and find that they have a wireless apparatus, that is a radio, I know at once that there is something wrong. Your Five valve sets may do wonders. They may enable you to hear the voice of America, but believe me, they will never transmit the only voice that's worth listening to. And all the fundamentalists said, Amen! And he's wrong. And he's wrong. And he's binding God's people's consciences in ways he ought not to do. He can have those convictions. He ought not to bind God's people to them. And he would say the same thing later in his life. And I'm sure I did stupid stuff like that when I was preaching in my early 20s too. In fact, I know I did. And I regret it now. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 7. Remember what? We looked at this passage a little bit last week. What does Paul know about eating meat sacrificed to idols? He's talking about that in the Corinthians. They're having a real problem with this. Meat markets and such. And the meat being sacrificed to idols. And then Christians partaking of that. And some Christians having a real problem of conscience with that. Other Christians not. What does Paul say about it in 1 Corinthians 8? Well, he says an idol is nothing. So Paul is operating under a strong conscience, but he is prepared to let these Corinthians remain in their lack of knowledge. Now, it's interesting. If you read the first half of 1 Corinthians, Paul is very concerned about what they know. He's saying, don't you know that your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know you can't unite the the body of Christ with a prostitute? Don't you know that you were bought with a price? Don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know that we'll judge angels? Why are you picking leaders you prefer? Don't you know that, you are, that Christ was crucified for you? Not me or Peter? So he's, he's perfectly content to call them, to remind them, and to not them, let them not remain in ignorance about really, really important things. But in 1 Corinthians 8, he says... We know some things, but not everyone does. So why all of a sudden in 1 Corinthians 8 is he saying, well, we know it, but you might not. What happened to Paul? What happened to the courageous apostle who calls everybody on the carpet about everything? Is he indifferent? Is he, is he, is he spiritually weak? Does he lack courage? Why isn't he pushing them? Well, there are some issues over which Paul pushes people to know things and to live out of what they know, and there are some issues where he's indifferent. He says in 1 Corinthians 8, I know some things, but not everyone does. What accounts for the difference? 1 Corinthians 8, 8, food does not bring us nearer to God. Paul says, if what you don't know is going to hurt you, I'll tell you. But... If it doesn't bring you closer to God or it doesn't take you away from God, Paul is willing to let you be free in your conscience and to a certain extent to remain in your ignorance. He does not take it upon himself to calibrate the conscience of his readers. He will challenge them, he will teach them the truth, but he will let them settle it between themselves and God. 
To this, Don Carson says, although Paul was an extraordinarily flexible apostle, he had sorted through elemental Christianity in a profound and nuanced way so that he knew when he could be flexible and when he should not bend. In other words, his grasp of theology enabled him to know who he was, what was expected of him, what he was free to do, what he should not consider doing under any circumstances. In short, we must also know what freedoms and constraints are ours in Jesus Christ, and the only way to achieve this maturity is to think through Scripture again and again to try to grasp the system of its thought, how the parts cohere and combine to make sense. That's number one. The other three are going to move very quickly. But that's the first one. That's a big one because that underscores how issues of conscience and why calibrating the conscience is so important for maintaining the unity of the church. Number two, why must we calibrate the conscience? Because we want to enjoy all that God has given to us. Because we want to enjoy all that God has given to us. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 referred to this passage last week, talking about false teachers who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's to be received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. Marriage is good. Food is good. It's designed by God. It's created by God for our good. Don't call evil what God has called good. Don't let your conscience accuse you of what God has permitted. So we must, we, we're called to calibrate our conscience because we want to enjoy all that God has given us. Paul is writing to Timothy because he wants Timothy to teach the churches that they should enjoy marriage, that they should enjoy food. Psalm 104, 14 and 15. You caused the grass to grow for the livestock. And all the Gundersons said, Amen. And plants for men to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Wine is a gift from God. Now, here's Pastor Mark again. He's advocating for that, for drinking and getting drunk. See, he always talks about that. No, I don't even like it. I don't drink it, I don't, but it's not because I want to. I don't like it. But I'm not going to call bad what God has made good. Is drunkenness a sin? Absolutely. Wine isn't. He has been given to gladden the heart of man. Number three, we want to calibrate our consciences because we want to eliminate what competes for our loyalty to Jesus. We want to compete. We want to eliminate what competes for our loyalty to Jesus. Proverbs 12, 11. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We want to calibrate our consciences to make sure we're not wasting our lives on what the Bible would call worthless pursuits. We want to make the best use of the time. We have a limited window in this life to glorify God and to spread the kingdom of God. And we don't want to waste it on things that are worthless. Now, that does not mean you should not take a vacation. That does not mean you should not enjoy recreation. You should do all of that. But your life must not be devoted to anything secondary when it competes with what is primary. 
Andy Nacelli, who's a professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary up in Minneapolis, where John Piper served as pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church for a number of years, has written a very helpful book, which has formed a lot of my thinking on this series called Conscience. And Andy Nacelli remarks how in his early days, he was a tremendous sports fanatic. Now, in reading and sharing this example, I am not trying to calibrate your conscience to his. There are many people, many of God's people, who enjoy sports as a good gift of God. Praise God. I'm not a huge sports fan, but there's lots of, the, the, lots of you that are and enjoy it in moderation and enjoy it to the glory of God. Enjoy it as an opportunity to serve and love and be with people. It's a fantastic thing. It's a great thing. But Andy did not feel that way about his particular sports addiction, he called it. And here's Andy's words. He says, I was a sports fanatic as a child. I would get up before anyone else in my home, grab the newspaper at the end of the driveway, and read the sports section cover to cover. I played baseball, basketball, football, and hockey. I had large collections of sports cards. I subscribed to sports magazines, hung posters of sports players on my bedroom wall, and watched games on TV as often as I could. Sports and most other hobbies are not sinful in and of themselves. The real issue is not sports, but the proper use of time for a Christian. In high school, when I grew more serious about following Jesus as my master, I realized my conscience was missing the category of wasting time on unnecessary pursuits. Sports are not inherently sinful, but what if all those not necessarily sinful activities added up to a life that lacks time for more important activities? I felt convicted that sports were eating up too much of my time, so I pulled back. He said, I started scheduling my whole life around sports and then where church could fit in and where the Bible could fit in, fit in under that. See, that's where it becomes a problem. When the more important priorities of God and God's people and service to God's kingdom is used to serve what has become an idol. So how does Andy feel about that? He goes on and says, I have absolutely no regrets about that calibration. I still follow some sports casually and occasionally watch a game but my conscience won't let me give myself wholeheartedly to sports like that again or to any other time-sucking hobby because I'm convinced that it's not the best way for me to spend the short time that God has given me. At the same time, I have good friends who passionately follow sports and see them as an opportunity for spending time with family, friends, and neighbors. For some, sports are their main outlet for actively engaging with their community. In that case, following sports ceases to be a waste of time and instead strategically uses time for God's glory. So that's the third reason we calibrate our conscience, because we want to eliminate what competes for our loyalty to Jesus. Fourthly, because we want to be free to serve others. We want to be free to serve others. This is why Paul calibrates his conscience in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Greek, I became a Greek. That I might win Jews. That I might win Greeks. He wants to win people for Christ's sake. And to do that, he flexes. He can live under the requirements of the Old Testament law, or he doesn't if he's trying to win Gentiles. But now, that doesn't mean that he violates the law of Christ to do it. He says that in the very passage in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. He doesn't become like adulterers to win adulterers. But he does flex in order to serve others. This is absolutely essential in the work of missions J.D. Crowley, a veteran missionary in Cambodia and other parts of Southeast Asia, talks about this very passage in 1 Corinthians 9 and the importance of a strong conscience for missionary work. He says, Christian liberty is the freedom to discipline yourself to be flexible for the sake of the gospel. 
Christian liberty isn't cool. I finally get to do the stuff I've always wanted to do, but my strict upbringing wouldn't let me. Then you Facebook about it so that everyone knows how hip and cool and free you are. That's not Christian liberty, that's immaturity. Christian liberty is the domain of the mature, not the immature. When the immature get a hold of it, they make a mess of it, like some of the Corinthians did. Christian liberty is not about you and your freedom to do what you want to do. It's about the freedom to discipline yourself, to be flexible for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of weaker believers. Here's what Andy would, or J.D. Crowley would say to us regarding anyone who desires future mission work. He says, a message to future missionaries, you can't live this kind of life, that is the missionary life, if your conscience is cluttered with all manner of restrictions that God has not instituted. If you have taken 50 little issues and made them into big issues in your conscience, those are 50 fewer areas in which you will be able to follow Paul's missionary example of flexing because if your conscience says those 50 issues are sin, then you can't bend to any of them. If what you eat and drink is in the category of black and white, you can't be a missionary. If pristine hygiene has made its way into your conscience as a matter of right and wrong, you can't flex on that. If what you do with your hands while you worship is a moral absolute, you can't bend on that. If your conscience tells you that it's wrong to eat animals like dog, there goes ministry to 90% of the people in the world. If you think privacy is next to godliness, you won't last long in most countries when they come over uninvited. If your conscience won't let you dance to tribal rhythms, stay away from Africa. Or just import all Western hymns and sing them exactly like you do at home and don't forget to take the piano. But if you do that, J.D. Crowley says, you'll end up with what Professor Mark Val calls franchise missions. Little cookie-cutter duplicates of our home church in a foreign country. Same dress, same songs, same buildings, and the same bound consciences. Bound by things that those poor folks had no idea were even sins until the missionaries came and brought American Christian subculture adding their burden, adding to their burden instead of lifting it. We must be, that's why Paul would never commend a brother to the mission field. And that's why he spent so much time in the New Testament talking about issues of conscience because the mission requires it. Finally, number three, and very quickly, how do you calibrate your conscience? How do you calibrate your conscience? Well, we finally come to Acts 10, which was just meant to be an illustration anyway, so we're not going to spend any substantial time in it. God graciously includes an example in the Bible of someone calibrating their conscience on this very issue in Acts 10, verses 9 through 16. This whole vision is set up to get Peter and his conscience strong so that he's able to be on mission to the Gentiles with the gospel. God knows that after he tells them the gospel, that is Peter, goes to the Gentiles and tells them the gospel, some are going to believe and they are going to be thrilled that Jesus has forgiven their sins and welcomed them into God's family and they're going to throw a sausage supper. Bacon's on the menu, Peter. What are you going to do about that? Well, with the sheet coming down, filled with all manner of animals and the voice of God saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat, Peter's conscience is having problems. Because Christ himself was commanding him to calibrate his conscience, 
He had to calibrate his conscience so that he would have the faith to accept food and people that he was previously not able to accept as matters of obedience to God. If Peter had decided to listen to his conscience instead of God, he would have committed a serious sin. He would have committed idolatry because he would have said, nope, my conscience is off limits to you, God. You're not allowed to address me about that. Peter's failure many years later, remember in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, where Paul had to go to Peter because he's withdrawing from Gentiles again? See, brothers and sisters, recalibration is a process. It takes a long time sometimes. Sometimes we default back to old, old ways of thinking and old habits. And Peter says, or Paul said to Peter in that moment, he said he confronted him right to his face. And he said, you're not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. You know what God said to you, and yet you refuse to live in line with it. And this education reveals to us that the calibration of our consciences, brothers and sisters, is not done in a vacuum. It's done in the context of the church. The church should be a safe place for believers to calibrate their consciences, and unfortunately it's often not because we judge one another and we condemn one another for things we ought not to condemn and judge each other for. God has put you into a church community. You can't force another person to calibrate their conscience, but you can help them by explaining why you do what you do. Why do followers of, what do followers of Jesus do when they have different convictions or both of them have verses for their convictions? Well, the Bible doesn't contradict itself, but our interpretations of it do. And somebody's interpretations are not correct. So what do we do about that? Well, we help each other. We, we're, we give freedom to one another. We are patient with each other. We don't judge one another. We don't insist that everybody think like us. We try to instruct one another, but we allow the Spirit time to work in another person's life. Our responsibility as disciples is to gradually adjust and calibrate our conscience to match God's revealed will in Scripture. And may God help us as we strive to help one another to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for, again, the opportunity to talk about a, a, an issue that in, in some of, to some of us seems like a very abstract talk, topic, like the conscience, but when you actually push down on it and explore it, it has many, many, many applications to us by way of Christian practice and obedience and faith and what it means to love and serve one another. So, Take all that I have said that is in line with your scriptures and is true and sanctify it to us. Sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. All that I have said about what it means to calibrate the conscience or why we must calibrate the conscience or how we calibrate the conscience, all that is in line with your scriptures, bless to our growth in grace. Anything that was said that was amiss or wrong or a product of my own ignorance, blow away from us and let it have no effect on us whatsoever. <laughs> Grant us your Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth and to cause us to walk in the ways of our servant King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his name, for our good, his glory. Amen. Let's stand together and respond in song.